mean, they should put into the ground a mini bass drum just, just kind of like a sound clean kind of thing. <coughs> okay. No, probably not. Yeah, I think so. Um, did you guys listen to that, Your Will Be Done? Right, right. Worship music. It, oh, it's so funny. The guy's like doing that. It's all about you. <laughs> you know, like, it, it's just so funny. Right, exactly. For my glory. Yeah, it's, it's really funny. <coughs> and then they would go from song to song, like, and just do that, you know? It, it, it was like a, it was. You know, it's just like really, and like kind of sad and true in some ways, you know. But anyways, I'll play that. Uh, it's a very simple, straightforward hymn. Yeah, I mean, it's not.
think there's an A minor there. God and Father, as in heaven, so on earth, my heart is drawn to self-exalting. Help me see your kingdom first. As Jesus walked, so I shall walk, held by your same unchanging love. Be still, my soul. Oh, lift your voice and pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done. <clears throat> How in the garden he persisted, I may never fully know the fearful weight of true obedience it was held by him alone what wondrous faith to bear that cross to bear my sin what wondrous love my hope was sure when there my savior prayed father not my will but yours be done When I am lost, when I am broken In the night of fear and doubt Still I will trust in my good Father Yes, to one great King I bow As Jesus rose, so I shall rise In ransom glory at the throne my heart restored with all your saints i sing father not my will but yours be done <clears throat> maybe hold on to the sea as we go forth by god and father lead us daily in the fight that all the world might see your glory and your name be lifted high and in this name we overcome for you shall see us safely home now as your church we lift our voice and pray father not my will but yours be done and in this name we overcome for you shall see us safely home now as your church we lift our voice and pray father not my will but yours be done father not my will but yours be done father not my will but yours be done
almost like <laughs> if we did it in the standing passage that comes next in the book of Mark. If you remember that we had our time with the kids last week, and I thought it maybe not wisest to, it's just not working, huh? It's on. No, it's green. I mean, I'm red, green, colorblind, so, you know. Something's going on. Hello, everyone. Well, since you couldn't hear anything that I was just saying, it's probably for me to repeat myself. Sorry to those of you at home. Hope some things got picked up there. Anyway, last week we looked at the passage that comes next in the book of Mark because I thought it may be not a best idea for parents to have to go home and answer the question, what does it mean that seven had her as a wife? And as we look at the passage in Deuteronomy about, uh, is the basis of, this is, now I've got to start all over again. Bill, how are we doing? We're there? Are we there? Yep. Okay. I'm going to preach from this position and not move. This is like having a cell phone with really bad reception right now. I'm not entirely sure what to do with it. Can you hear me now? I feel like that commercial. We're good? All right. Can we thank Bill for everything he does to make this sort of thing not normally happen? Thank you, Bill. So anyway, because I have just confused you terribly by reordering the passage that come in Mark, let's just remember where we've been since chapter 11 started, all right? In chapter 11, we had from verses 1 to 11 the triumphal entry, but what we noticed that was Jesus didn't just go into Jerusalem itself. It was a focus on the temple. It's kind of like uh, Mark 11 and 12 could just be called when Jesus goes to church because that's kind of what he's doing. He went in, had the triumphal entry, and it says at the end of that text, he went into the temple, walked around for a little bit, and then left. What happens next is the temple cleansing. Remember the parable of the fig tree where it wasn't exactly a parable like the others, but it certainly served as an illustration. Something looked fruitful, but it wasn't. And Jesus in the middle, having cursed it, kind of shows that this was not about the fig tree, but about the temple in the first place. After that, then, having cleansed the temple didn't mean that he took some bleach. It meant that he really disrupted the way everything was going on. As though somebody would come into church and just disrupt our service, we would probably ask, "Um, who gave you the authority to do that? And that's exactly the question that they asked Jesus. Who told you it's okay for you to come in and tell us that we can't, in the court of the Gentiles, exchange money and sell things? And Jesus said, well, kind of the Old Testament did. But more than that, I'm telling you. I'm the one with authority to tell you you cannot do this. And then he gave a real parable about the tenants. Remember that? The guy has a vineyard, leases it out, expects to get fruit from those who should have faithfully taken care of it for him. And instead, 
they kill every one of his delegates, even his son. Now, if you've been reading in Mark since chapter 8, you realize that has a little bit more than just sort of a foretelling about the priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and everybody. It has a lot to do with actually the son himself who's there. But the question that came next then, as they're trying to trip him up, was a weird alliance between the Pharisees and the Herodians. Question of, hey, should we pay taxes or not? They weren't really curious. They were just trying to trip him up. But Jesus avoids that snare, moves on. And then we looked at what really was the last question. Because if you remember at the end of the last text, it said they asked him no more questions from that point on. Which again would throw you off if you're paying attention because you're wondering why is a question coming? Well, the reason is because ultimately that question last week, which rules the best, Which rule is the best? That was kind of the last little bit. Right in the middle there is this question. Whose wife will she be? All right, so everybody's got their bearings. We've got the lay of the land. You know where you're at in Mark 11 and 12, right? It's all about Jerusalem. It's all about the temple. It's all about what is going on, and they're trying to trap Jesus. And the trap is just like fishing. It starts with bait. Here's the bait. Verse 18, the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. They asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now that's the bait. It's appropriate bait for the Sadducees because they choose from something that Moses gave because they held that the only books of the Old Testament that really were actual books of the Old Testament were the first five books. So if Moses said it, it's the law. The rest of that stuff, the prophets and the poets, the rest of the history, they didn't hold that to be anything that they would view as inspired scripture. So they're quoting from their book, which is interesting. Jesus is going to quote later on from their book and help them a little bit too. But in this particular case, they ask a question about the law. And the law is what's called leveret marriage. It's a tricky one. Now, I was going to have Josiah read this passage, but I thought maybe not. You'll understand why in a second. Here's Deuteronomy 25. This is the passage they're quoting. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. That's what they're quoting. It doesn't quite seem like it makes sense. And it was really interesting to read a little bit about the way that this law kind of aged over time. Both from when it was written by Moses up to when it's being quoted here by the Sadducees to Jesus. And then on from there, 
Because the heart of the law makes a lot of sense. Land was passed, much like if you read anything from, you know, Sense and Sensibility or Pride and Prejudice, it's passed from father to son. That's the way it works. And so the laws of inheritance meant that if a woman who's described in Deuteronomy 25 or who's being described multiple times there by the Sadducees, if she were to die without anyone to take care of her in a land of no social security, no pension, no real protection for her, then if her husband, who's the protection for her, dies and there's no son to be protection for her in her later years, she's in a lot of trouble. Because the land that belonged to great-grandfather, to grandfather, to father, to, you know, to her husband, that wouldn't be land she could live on. It would go somewhere else. It would go outside the family. The only way that it would work is if they could technically have a son, sort of not through the traditional means, but through sort of an adopted into her family name, into her dead husband's family name's line by the brother doing his job. Now, this is kind of shown up in a few spots in the Old Testament, even before the law. There was a spot where that was supposed to happen in the past. One of the brothers didn't work it out exactly the way he was supposed to. If you thought this was an awkward text, go read about Onan. You'll read a more awkward text back there. Uh, He died because he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. There was an expectation in the day, and the Jews weren't the only ones who had it, And Moses is codifying it into law here in Deuteronomy 25 and saying this is the way that God expects you to take care of your aged ones, especially the widows among you, so that there can be dignity and so that there can be the preservation of land and there can be protection for the aged. It it, it made sense, as weird as it sounds to us today. But because it didn't age well, over time, the... The written law, the, the way that the, the, sorry, the oral law and the way that it used the written law ultimately became a situation where if you were Jewish centuries later, there was a question of, hey, I can get a job? And yes, I'm a widow. But I don't really like my husband's brother. I'm not really into that idea of becoming his second wife. And so... Could we just do something else? Because this whole concept became so sort of outside the bounds of what seemed normal as societies aged and matured, Jews actually would prefer to do the second part of the verse. And so there became a really normal custom for a woman whose husband would die that the husband, uh, or sorry, the brother of the dead husband would come in And in the presence of a rabbi, say exactly these words. I do not wish to do this. And the woman would not spit in his face. They kind of edged that back. But she needed to take his shoe, throw it away, spit on the ground. And then the rabbi said, all right, you guys are all absolved. You don't have to do this. Yeah, you could understand why in our day that might be a preferable ceremony to the first provision, which is a lot more involved. But the whole... Yeah, I mean, if you want another obscure thing, what's going on with a shoe, right? Here's, here's the way the Jews said that the shoe thing makes sense. Listen to this text from Psalm 108. This, this is a bunny trail, but it's kind of fun, so let's just at least go down it. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over the earth. God has promised in his holiness 
With exultation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah, my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. It's kind of like in another spot where God, Jesus says, hey, don't go taking oaths because you don't own anything. And the earth is God's footstool. In other words, where I put my feet kind of shows where I have some sense of my own power. On Edom, I cast my shoe is the way that the Jews were looking and saying, the whole sandal thing really is that something about what you put your foot on, kind of the way we might say that, like he just, you know, he put his foot on the neck of his enemies as we read that one. Or if you were really to kick a guy when he's down, you're talking with that same sense. He's down there at your feet, you're in power, and your shoe kind of represents that dominion that you have over someone. What the wife is actually saying to the husband, or to the brother of the husband, is you should be using your power to do good. But instead, we're taking your power, we're symbolically, I'm going to stop throwing things for the sake of whatever I've got going on here. What's that? I'd really prefer not to. Do you guys mind the rumblings too much or is it terribly distracting? All right, good. I'm going to start dancing then. What some of you might be thinking of, though, that's a little bit more popular version of this is the book of Ruth. Right? Ruth represents Naomi, her line. There's a lot of death in the story. And ultimately, Boaz comes in to not just find a pretty wife, right? This isn't a matchmaking game. It's him redeeming the name of those that have been lost. It's providing for Naomi. It's doing something good. But even at the end of it, there's this whole shoe exchange whenever somebody else is a closer relative and ought to have the right to do this sort of thing. So you see, this question that's even being put forward The Pharisees already answered it in the past. It might sound really obscure to us, but these guys, they got into this stuff. This mattered to them. And the Sadducees, who, if you read about them later, this is the only time they're going to show up in the book of Mark. But in Acts, we get another kind of reminder that they don't believe in a resurrection, and that's because you're not going to find any evidence of it in the first five books that they hold to. The Pharisees, though, who do believe in a resurrection, have been posed this question before. And in written literature, you'd find the Pharisees say, she's the wife of the first guy. The rest of them, were all, they were just stand-ins. If you're going to go see Hamilton, you know who you want to have act in the right parts, right? Everybody else is like, eh, that's, that's not bad, but you're not that guy. That's exactly the way the Pharisees answered it. We've got starters. And then we've got bench warmers. She's married to the starter. That's the way it is. But they're coming to Jesus and they're trying to trip him up and they're giving him this bait. So if it seems like an obscure question, it is. Just you got to understand, they really got into this kind of thing. And it was exciting to them to try and figure out whose side you were on, where you're coming down. And ultimately, Underneath it, then, here comes the snare that's there. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when she died, she left no offspring. The second, and you, in the resurrection, here's the hook, 23. Maybe you could even read it this way. If there really is such a thing as a resurrection, Jesus, then when they rise again, whose wife will she be? 
Donald English, who was quoting another guy, said this. The Sadducees were the aristocratic party made up of the high priestly and leading lay families of Jerusalem. They were wealthy and worldly. Their arrogance and harshness in the administration of justice were notorious. Conservative in doctrine, they rejected what they regarded as Pharisaic innovations, but their main concern was for the maintenance of their privileges, not for doctrinal purity. See, the bait was there, but the real hook wasn't so much about who's right or who's wrong. It was about you messed with our seat of power. You know one of the main ways that the Sadducees' whole empire was founded? It was on collecting and trading and doing all the business in the temple. That was their moneymaker. This was their Black Friday, and Jesus came in and messed with their whole system. And the Sanhedrin wants to know on what authority you're doing that, and now the Sadducees want to know, what are you doing messing with our privileges? And so they're cloaking their accusation behind this sense of a doctrinal question, but it's not, it's not really a doctrinal question. But what they're still getting at is what you might realize kind of the last time that Jesus was talking with someone and the teacher-student role got a little switched up. Remember that scribe? He comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, here's a question. And at the end, he says, hey, you're right. And it's a little confusing to figure out. Is Jesus the teacher? Is Jesus the student? The roles are being, I don't know what I just did there. The roles are being reversed. And so here they're coming. And in the same way, they're trying to trap Jesus. And what Jesus says at the beginning of verse 24 is, is not this the reason you were wrong? And when he's done giving them the whole reason, he ends and says, you are very wrong. Reminds me of that, that whole phrase, there's no such thing as a stupid question, which isn't true. I taught for 10 years. <laughs> and I can promise you there are a ton of stupid questions. And so from my experience in school, I can say that whenever you're trying to teach about New England and kids are trying to find it on a map of Europe, you realize there's a fundamental error. And the problem is that that's not something that one of my kids did. That was me when I was in middle school. <laughs> and it was the most confusing week of my life. And I knew that there is such a, there's no such thing as a stupid question. But you can be absolutely positive that when everybody was talking, I'm like, boy, it sounds like we're talking about America. But man, New England, I know where England is. And so I am just desperately trying to make sense in social studies class. I didn't ask a stupid question because I was smarter than the Sadducees. As a teacher, though, there was that moment that I was applying for a job. And they asked the question, what do you think about corporal punishment? You see, this was, this was years, decades, in fact, ago. And, well, I'm answering and I said well I suppose in the case of rape or murder that this would be a good idea this, you know I mean you don't kill somebody right capital pun oh in that moment I recognized that corporal punishment is not exactly the same thing as capital punishment capital punishment refers to whether you're going to kill them 
Corporal punishment refers to whether you're going to spank them. I didn't get the job, just in case you were wondering, because I can imagine that as they were looking at my application and were wondering, does this kid expect that rape and murder is going to be happening in the classroom? Uh, You know. This is a stupid question. Based in terrible ignorance. And it serves as an illustration for us, guys. Because what's happened so far in the story shows us that the Sadducees who are desperate to hold on to their power are pretending to ask a question as though they're curious, but we already know they're skeptics. What is happening here before Jesus is someone trying to challenge his authority, not because they're interested in submitting to his authority, but because they don't want to lose any of their own. And if you can't see a metaphor for the world in which we live today, you're probably not paying attention. We live in a land of skepticism, and Jesus' answer to these skeptics actually applies to the reason that people today are confused as well. So without trying to take a text that is largely happening to Jesus and make it all about us, because we said, let's not do that with the book of Mark, hmm? I still think that as we watch Jesus interact in this, that we can understand, because Jesus gives some principles that he says that, found, that are like the foundation of why they're wrong. But we recognize that's why the world is still wrong today. See, the three reasons are these. They can't really read God's word. They don't really know God's power, and they won't ever worship God's son. Those three fundamental errors are what Jesus exposes in between his brackets of Isn't this why you're wrong? Oh, you are so wrong. Let me tell you why you're wrong. He says it this way. The first one is this. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither, you know, neither the scriptures. Let's just take that little portion there for a second. And then he says this, and he goes to the scriptures that they would accept. Verse 26. As for the dead being raised... Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, is Jesus' answer pretty plain to you there? Pretty obvious, right? Exactly what he's doing. We can see it. Not not quite as obvious, is it? The question is, well, they're not the question, really. The accusation is, resurrection is a stupid concept, Jesus. Let's just tell you why. We'll just take the illustration of marriage. Moses told us it should work this way. And marriage clearly shows us that nobody can get raised because in a situation like this, God would have such a quandary, he wouldn't even know what to do. So clearly, resurrection is a stupid concept. Jesus starts and said, here's why you're wrong. You don't even know how to read the Bible. You're holding to these five books. I'll deal with you on terms of those five books. When God is speaking to Moses, and we should just do a little bit of our you know, timeline here. So if this is the past, and this is the future, and I'm Moses, where are Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Future, present, or past? 
passed. Very good. Very good, kids. It was not intended to stump you or anything like that. You see, by the time God was speaking to Moses, the three people he references are dead. And so if God were speaking in real sense in which resurrection cannot exist, then he used the wrong tense of the verb, didn't he? If he were speaking to Moses in the present tense and he was speaking of those who existed in the past, what he would need to say is, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob. Because when I look into the past, people who existed back then and do not exist anymore, God could not say something in the present tense, could he? That's exactly Jesus' point. But because he says, I am the God of people who existed in the past, what does it say about those three people? They still exist at the time of Moses. And because they still exist at the time of Moses, then apparently the resurrection is not a stupid idea, but it is, according to Jesus, something that can be found even in the pages of the Bible. Now, one thing we realize is we probably ought to be learning to read our Bibles a little bit more carefully. Hmm? Because Jesus makes an entire point based on the tense of a linking verb. It's the littlest of them. To be, was, is, will be. But the tense of it, where it exists in time, is entirely Jesus' point. And he says, God is not the God simply of the past. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And the only way that those can be existing in the present tense in Moses' day is if they're still around. And therefore, Sadducees, you are quite wrong. Verse 27. It can be tricky for believers when skeptics come and bring to them some question from the Bible. It can be hard because somebody else has studied the errors of the book that you take to be the living revelation of the living God. And they've done a great job poking some hole and saying, if this hole exists, then none of your confidence can exist. And there can be a long set of sermons on what we ought to do in those kinds of cases. But the main thing I want you to understand here is that you don't have to so fundamentally worry about those moments because the reality Jesus is pointing out is that skeptics can't really read God's word. And that's one of the fundamental reasons that they miss the truth. This book belongs to the people of faith. That doesn't mean it can't be backed up with good evidence. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have a ton of research, far more research defending it than any other document on the planet today. It does mean that when we have looked back into the past, that we have moments that we're going to have to deal with, like when we get to the very end of the book of Mark, where there's a whole section that I won't be preaching because it doesn't seem to be original, and yet it's in the Bible. What do we do with these moments? We take them in a scholarly way and we realize that the more articulate we get about what was there in the very beginning, 
the more we should have confidence what's been passed down to us today. And yet, the Bible is for a people of faith. And what that means is that because the word is living and active, its living and active nature is only for those who are alive. In a fundamental way, the Bible speaks of its own validity, its own accuracy, and its own capability to diagnose and to tell what's wrong with the world and how to fix it because it speaks of a God who is alive today. And those not alive to God have trouble reading the living word where the living God speaks. Like I said, there's a lot of other stuff we could talk about when it comes to the word of God, but the main thing we have to understand first as we engage with others is that we come to this book able to read a Bible that they are unable to read. And that ought to make a lot of difference in the way that we interact with them. Because if Jesus were to answer this question, and a little spoiler, the Sadducees don't immediately repent at the end of this interaction. And they're talking to God himself. What that means is that when skeptics come to a question, it's not the job of every believer to change the attitude and the opinion of those skeptics. It's not your job to convince somebody who, if you gave them every satisfactory answer to a question they had about the Bible, would still at the end of it probably not bend their knee to God. Because we just have to recognize in the very beginning the ability to read the Bible in the first place is actually a gift that comes from God when he makes us alive to him. We're people of faith. This is a book built to increase and to strengthen our faith. We just have to remember from the get-go that skeptics can't really read God's word. And that's the point Jesus is making. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you you know neither the scriptures. And his second point is, you do not know the power of God. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know not the power of God. Verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. What Jesus is saying here is that not only are you reading the Bible wrongly, and he doesn't even go on to ask the question of whether the prophets and the poets and the other historians of the Old Testament are inspired, But he is going and saying, beyond the inability you have to read the Bible, you don't even know the power of God. That's the other reason you're wrong. And let me just say this. You have so misunderstood what resurrection is all about in the first place. You're thinking about it exactly with unsanctified imagination, taking what you see in this corrupted world and believing that is all that God can do out into eternity. Michael Card says it this way. Jesus dismantles the argument upon which their question is based. Resurrection, he says, is not merely reanimation. It represents complete transformation, including the transformation of all human relationships. Resurrected men and women will live like the angels in relationships that supersede marriage. Now, think of the way that 
Paul talks about resurrection. To just give you another example of this in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, he does some things to diagnose kind of what people say who say there's no resurrection from the dead. And part of what he does is say, hey, people are baptized for the dead, and that wouldn't make any sense unless there was an actual resurrection. And this is also true, and this is also true, but then he gives an analogy, and he says, let's pretend that you're going to plant a seed. Seed grows up, and it falls into the ground, and it dies. And when it dies, you might think that's the end, but the death is actually the beginning of a transformation into something entirely different. So taking that analogy, let's take a lima bean seed. We've talked about this before in the church. If a kid who knew nothing about the way that things grow in the plant kingdom was told by you, we're going to take this lima bean, we're going to stick it into the dirt, and then it'll grow, what would they think? We're going to get a really big bean because I know what it's like for me to grow. I used to be like me, and I used to be little. What happens when I grow? I still look like me. I'm a little bit different, but I'm just bigger. And then a few weeks later, he sees what's actually pushing up out of the dirt, and he's like, that doesn't look like a bean at all. It's totally different. It looks like a tree or like a blade of grass. I thought you said the bean was going to grow, and that's Paul's point. Yeah, it's going to grow. But don't let your corrupted imagination limit what God can do out into the future. That bean is going to grow, but it's going to grow into something totally different, yet still a bean. A bean, but not a bean. Resurrection? Yes. Like we know it now? Yes. But, man, you're just a seed right now. And our relationships are just relationships between seeds right now. You know how? When people meet angels, they're just blown away by what's actually going on in that interaction. We're going to actually sort of supersede them out into the future. And so the way that their relationships transcend anything that we can really understand, you're going to get out of this plane and you're going to get up into that one. Resurrection is not merely reanimation. And all throughout the Bible, this capacity for God to bring what was dead back to life seems to be in not just sort of an example of his power, it's the definition of God's power. Listen to the way that Paul talks. He says in Romans 1, His son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, And just in case you didn't know what he was talking about, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's his introduction. How does he defend the God, the the fact that God has power? He says it this way. He brought Jesus back from the dead. That's the definition of the power of God. Later on in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? Now, the broader argument he's making there is against sexual impurity in the church. But in the middle of that, he says, the reason that you need to do something that's like pure with your body is because your body really, really matters. Like that seed really, really matters. It's not going to be limited to its current form. But boy, wouldn't you treat the seed that has so much potential with honor knowing what it'll become? That's why you take your body now and you treat it with honor. You don't give it away to sexual impurity and prostitution, those kinds of things. You're joined to Christ. You're 
bodies are members of Christ. And what God did powerfully with his body, he will do with your body. Therefore, avoid sexual sin. You see the way that Paul uses Jesus' whole point. Resurrection defines the power of God. It defined it when Jesus was raised. It defines what's going to happen to us as we go out into the future. And ultimately then, excuse me, just a second. I'm sure we will fix this cord by next week. This whole concept, though, that there's power at work. You see how this is kind of the fundamental definition of what it means to have hope that God's going to do something beyond what you're experiencing right now in your life? I mean, if all we were trying to do as Christians was live with what God gave us now, make the most of it because there's no hope out into the future, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 would be saying, you're a bunch of idiots. Oh my goodness. If this is all we get, you should take everything you've got now and spend it for this life right now. Just eat all you want. Just drink to your heart's content. Just live and be merry now because there's nothing you're investing for in the future. But that's a really bad retirement plan. But because resurrection is absolutely a fundamental like point of what it means to be a Christian, because we have hope for that reason, then we think so differently. Do you see Jesus' point about why not only the Sadducees, but skeptics across the ages will miss the truth? Why is it that they are very wrong or that they are quite wrong? It's because there is a fundamental skepticism that God can do anything beyond my corrupted imagination right now. And it totally makes sense. If I don't think that God exists, if I don't think that I'm a sinner, then I think that my experience right now is as good as it can get. And Paul gets that logic. And so we have to understand that we who actually have hope that God works supernaturally beyond just the natural processes of this world are interacting with people who don't believe that. This is going to make the conversation very difficult, won't it? Sometimes I think we forget this. And so one, we try to find common ground where there isn't. And two, sometimes we try to argue giving away all of our best plays and our best weapons. The fact that God acts supernaturally and the fact that his power is displayed in having the ability to bring life where there's death, that's the fundamental basis of what we argue for when we're trying to introduce somebody to God in the first place. It makes no sense for us to back off and say, well, since I want to have some bridges with you, let's assume God doesn't exist, and let's assume that there's no such thing as the supernatural, and let's still talk about why Christian morals are good. What a dumb idea, guys. There's no way we should be having those kinds of conversations in the world because we're believers. We're people who ground ourselves in what God has said and who have hope in what God will do. But the third reason... It doesn't quite come through in this conversation, but that we've been getting in the book of Mark all along. It's not just that they can't read God's word. It's also not just that they don't get God's power. It's that they will never worship God's son. Here's what we've read so far. He began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. 
He said that in chapter 8. He said it again in chapter 9. The Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill him. He said it again in chapter 10. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Jesus, three times before he even gets into this conversation, says, I know exactly how this is going to end. It's not as though I'm going to give them the right stuff, and then they're going to worship me. I'm going to enter in. I'm going to engage in these questions. I'm going to try to be trapped. They're going to bait and lure me. I'm going to avoid it, and they'll still kill me. He has been telling his disciples over and over and over, clearly enough that Peter satanically opposed Jesus. And you and I today gauge whether we're popular in this world as a sign of whether we're doing well. What are we thinking? Jesus is abundantly clear that as he enters into Jerusalem, he's going to be rejected. It's going to lead to his betrayal and to his death. It's going to mean that he's going to get mocked and spit on and flogged and killed. And we've seen it play out. All the beginning from chapter 3, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. We just saw it in chapter 12. That same animosity through the entire book has been laid out here. They were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people. And so they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Do you see the, the problem is that if we think we're engaging with the world today in a different type of game that Jesus was coming into play, then we're not following our Lord and Savior. He came in knowing it was going to lead to his death. And so many times we engage with people, forgetting that in the state they're in, there is a fundamental resistance to the idea of worshiping anyone but myself. So the Sadducees were not going to get to the point that they were going to worship the Son, just like the bulk of the time when you're dealing with someone so hard-heartedly committed to their own skepticism that they're not going to listen to what God said and they're not going to believe God has any power, that when the Son shows up, guess what the tenants did? They killed him! And yet we think that somehow it's our job to ignore all that. Instead, again, not trying to take something about Jesus and make it all about us, but learning from Jesus. Jesus doesn't evaluate his faithfulness at the end of any three of these conversations based on when he, whether he changed anybody's mind. Because here's what he knew. Paul said it a little bit more clearly. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. You see what Paul's saying? I have come into your city, just like I came into every other city, and I encountered resistance. And my job at that point was to recognize one thing. I'm talking to blind people. I'm talking to people who have been intentionally blinded so they can't see this truth about Jesus. And that leaves me with a burden. It's not to proclaim me. It's not to worry. Does the world like me? 
It's not so that I can stand here and somehow say, oh my goodness, I'm a Christian. I'm being made fun of. I'm being opposed. I'm being vilified. Oh God, what am I doing wrong? Blessed are you when people persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil falsely against you on my sake. Rejoice and be glad, for thus they treated the prophets who were before you. It's not just that we look back to Jesus. We look all the way down the storyline of Scripture and we say, it has been the case that those that are faithful are often, sidebar in another sermon, not because they're stupid and rude, but because they're faithful, rejected by a world that is blinded. I'm going to read to you for a little bit. This is a nice little devotional by John Piper. He says, does it matter what others think? Life is too short to spend time and energy worrying about what others think of us. There we go. No. (laughs) Although that could be it. That could be it. Or should we care about what others think precisely because what really mat- that's what really matters in this life? Should we be radically free from what others think so that we don't fall into the indictment of being second-handed or man-pleaser, a slave to expediency? Or should we keep an eye out for what others think before we do it so that we don't fall into the indictment of being boorish and insensitive and offensive? The answer is not simple. Some biblical texts seem to say it matters what others think, and others seem to say it doesn't. Now, this is a short little devotional, and I'll put the rest of it in the email, but listen to his conclusion. We ought not to care much what others think of us for our own sake. Our concern is ultimately for Christ's reputation, not ours. The accent falls not on our value or our excellence or our virtue or our power or our wisdom. It falls on whether Christ is honored by what people think of us. Does Christ get a good reputation because of the way we live? Is the excellence of Christ displayed in our lives? That should matter to us. Not whether we ourselves are praised. Notice the crucial distinction. The litmus test of our faithfully displaying the truth and beauty of Christ is in our lives, not in the opinion of others. We want them to see Christ in us and love him and thus very incidentally to approve of us. But when John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease, he spoke for every true Christian. We must not insist on being less than Christ. Sorry, we must, (laughs) we must insist. You were probably wondering what I was doing there. I inserted an errant not. We must insist on being less than Christ. I am vigilant, as far as it depends on me, to be less than Christ to others. Back to Paul. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And we remember this. How did I get out of this category? Because none of us was born in allegiance to God. Every one of us entered this world in this state, blinded by the God of this world as an unbeliever, kept from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. What happened? Here's what happened. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face 
of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus did for you. And it shouldn't be shocking to us when we encounter people who are in the state we used to be in. Blind and skeptical. At one point in time, we were the Sadducees in this story, looking at God, trying to trap him so that he could do our will and he could restore our comforts. It's the way we viewed God. But God. Shown the light of Christ into our lives. And suddenly we were alive. And suddenly we wanted to listen to the living word. And suddenly we were alive and we knew that we needed to have hope beyond what we could see in this world. And so we trusted in the power of God. Suddenly we were alive and we looked at Jesus, not as one we wanted to vilify and we wanted to take the place of, but one we simply wanted to bow the knee to and we wanted to worship him. Why? Because God took light and shone it into our hearts. So what do we do when we're engaged in this world? Stop worrying about what people think of you. Don't be a jerk, but stop worrying about what people think of you. That's not the standard. Stop taking all this burden that you have to change them. And just talk about Jesus and what he's done in your life. Quote the word and remind them why it matters to you. Tell your story and highlight the power of God. And let them know that you have found no other allegiance in this world so freeing as bowing your knee to worship the Son of God. That's it. And if it doesn't work, then take your place up alongside Jesus because apparently it didn't work here. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. But he who sits in heaven laughs. He is not anxious at the rebellion and the skepticism of the world. He is laughing at it. And he's holding them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, (laughs) I see what you're doing. Here's what I'm doing. I am setting my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make these nations your heritage. The end of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now then, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. And if you're having trouble with all this, here's what you can say to someone who's skeptical. Blessed are all, like me, who just took refuge in him. At the end of the day, that's what it means to be faithful. Phil and uh, the team are going to come and they're going to lead us in a song called Not My Will, But Yours Be Done. And at the end of that, then... Barb and Steve are going to lead us in praying for believers today who are persecuted in a way that we can't understand. It's been said there's not two bodies of Christ, the persecuted and the free. There is one body at the same time, both persecuted and free. And that's what we're going to take some time to do in the midst of 
International Day of Prayer, which today is. Um, we're going to pray for the persecuted church. We're going to learn this song first. And then, Barb, Steve, when uh, you want to come up, uh, lead on. So let me pray for us as we stand. Father, I pray for the courage that is based on your word and that feels your power so that we would worship Jesus in a way that you would use, however you would use it. Lord, I pray in gratitude for the fact that you redeemed us. Would you use us? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing this new song together. Yo. Your-